Outdoor Edge introduces the all-new Razor Guide Pack. Coming in at 12 ounces and in a premium wax canvas roll pack for compact storage and travel, the Razor Guide Pack is seven blades in total, including a 5-inch replaceable blade folding knife, a 3-inch replaceable blade caping knife, and the flip and zip saw for wood or bone. Whether you're hunting the back 40 or chasing game deep in the backcountry, the Razor Guide Pack has it all. For more information, visit OutdoorEdge.com. The Houndsman XP Podcast is fueled by Joy Dog Food. Joy Dog Food has a rich tradition of supporting the Houndsman of America. Founded in 1945, Joy is proud of its history and the relationship it has built with the American Houndsman. And in 76 years, there's never been a recall. Made with 100% American-made high-quality ingredients, Joy Dog Food has one of the highest calorie-dense formulas on the market. For 76 years, this made-in-America product has kept hunting dogs in the field day after day, season after season. And when we say made in America, Joy has a long track record of fighting for American freedoms by being on the front lines against the animal rights movement and their extremist tactics. Joy will fuel your hounds and fight for your freedoms, fueled by Joy. the Houndsman XP Podcast. Good dog, get that bear. Get that bear in here. The original podcast for the complete Houndsman. The podcast that represents our lifestyle of extreme performance. Shoot up there! Yeah! 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 Good boy! Good boy, Ranger! Uniting houndsmen across the globe from east to west, north to south. You know, if you're going to catch a cat or a lion, you know, you have to have teamwork. We take you to the wildest places on earth. Yeah, so how many days how many days a week do you spend on As much as I can to be honest with you. Anytime that I get I'm I'm out there. Join us for every heart pounding adventure on Houndsman XP. I'll tell you like I tell everyone else, I'm gonna hunt whether you're here or not, so you might as well be here. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Houndsman XP Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Powell. And in this episode of the Houndsman XP Podcast, we're going to tell some old game warden stories. Seth has been dying to hear some stories for a long time. And it was quite a uh, crazy career at times. But uh, we're we're going to recap some of those most memorable stories. And we're going to talk about coon hunters and game wardens. I did my best to keep the names out of these stories to protect the innocent and the ignorant. 
There wasn't much innocence, but there was a lot of ignorance. And that came from both sides, whether they came from the guys wearing uniforms or the guys running hounds. We're going to deep dive into this whole topic. We're going to talk about why game wardens and wildlife professionals do what they do and why coon hunters do what they do and how we can learn from both sides of this thing. So I think we're going to enjoy this one. I had a fun time telling some of these old stories and rehashing that. Make sure you're checking us out on Patreon. We are dropping some discount codes over there. Seth is doing a great job. We just started reaching out to you by email directly from us. We found that a lot of our Patreon messages were going to people's spam folders. You weren't getting notified. And it's just part of the learning curve, folks. We hadn't forgot about you. We think about you a lot. And we send a lot of stuff out. There's stuff that comes out of our Patreon account every week, but we know that you were not receiving that. And so we started a new deal where we're contacting you directly by email, and you should have gotten those first rounds of emails last week. You can find our Patreon account by going to houndsmanxp.com, clicking on the support tab. It'll take you right into Patreon. And if you're not familiar, when you join us at the $12 level, you are going to get a membership to the Sportsman's Alliance included in that. And we're working on some other cool deals there too that are going to be dropping very shortly. Something that you're going to be excited about and going to be able to benefit from. It's going to be a deep discount on a on a cool app for your phone, something that all hunters should be using. We'll make that announcement soon, as soon as the ink dries on the agreement, and we'll get that rolling out to you. You're gonna get a huge discount when you join us on Patreon. While you're at our website at houndsmanxp.com, make sure you check out all of our sponsors listed there. All of these sponsors are serious about preserving your freedoms to free cast hounds. I strongly encourage you to give them a look before you buy your next round of equipment and if you're a patreon member again there are discount codes for using those sponsors this is a fun episode seth is as energetic as ever as inquisitive as ever and he drags some stories out of me that uh, i kind of even forgot about so sit back buckle up this is a box shaker Let's get the tailgate down. It's time to dump the box. I uh, stumbled into a badger digging up some rodents. That was pretty rad. No I don't kidding. get to see that very often. Yeah. He was digging up a banner tail kangaroo at mound, and I was like, run, banner tail, run. Root- rooting for him. You should ditch your terrier and get a badger. That's what I think Chad should work on next. Is a I'm gonna, trained badger. I want to come out and dig a badger with my terrier. Yeah. I wanted to do that with Chad, but it was the wrong time of year. Yeah. Yeah. This sounds too really hot. Fun. Too hot or what? No, it was snowing everywhere. <laughs> yeah. 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 It was like two feet of snow. <laughs> I just talk, yeah. You, when you guys are up there, I get it now. I get mm-hmm. it. No, I'm going to go with him sometime whenever that is the time of year to do. Apparently, they're like very transient animals. And so, like, I was reading a paper. So Chad told me that they're really transient and I was like, which means they move around a lot. And I was like, okay, uh, I wanted to kind of check that out myself. So apparently like, so the family that badgers, wolverines, weasels, stoats, martens, and otters are in is called Mustelidae. And like that whole family. How come you always wait to nerd out every time you come on my podcast? 
No, Chris. You that's my nerd secret. Out all the I'm time. always nerding yeah, out. <laughs> uh, that's right. I, you're right. <laughs> anyway, but they they collared some wolverines, man. And apparently wolverines, they don't care, man. They just go wherever they want. One of them walked like 400 miles yeah. in no particular direction. It was just walking around. Yeah. And it like walk was walking like 20 hours a day. Wolverine and, don't care. Yeah. And apparently badgers are very similar. Like there's some radio collar data of them. All right. Sorry. GPS collar data of them. They'll just be walking in the desert floor. And then they're like, I just want to climb this mountain. And they'll just walk to the top of a mountain and then come back down. Don't you Why? remember? Don't you remember all that craze that was going on about honey badgers? Yes. Like honey badger don't care. Yeah. Yeah. That there was, was a, um, wolf, there was a Wolverine. We could have told the Wolverine story just as easy. I mean, you talk about something that walks around on the face of the earth with the nastiest attitude ever. Oh, you're a grizzly bear, and you think you want to start some crap with me? Yeah. Bring it. Okay. Whatever. <laughs> and that's the thing. Like, when a wolverine backs a grizzly bear down, in nature, you can't afford to get hurt. So, like, if I was out there, like, I didn't know what a doctor was. And then, like, an elementary school kid with, like, five butcher knives taped to his hands just, like, came running at me like a psychopath, I'd run away, too. I'm not going to stand and fight him. <laughs> Like I'm yeah. out of here. It's all attitude. They're just crazy. And yep. I would say, I would argue that a Wolverine's more successful than a honey badger because they have transglobal radi like transglobal range, the entire northern hemisphere. And honey badgers are only in Africa. So yeah. I'm on team Wolverine. Heck yeah. Me too. Me too. Never seen one though. I wanted to. When I was in Canada, I saw their tracks, but I never saw one. They're it's a rare thing to see them. <clears throat> For sure. Well, hey, let's do some recap and stuff. Not not a bunch of recap, and we're going to do. I want to talk about what I did this weekend because it was cool, and then I want to then. Uh, so so you just need to like say yeah, that's cool throughout the whole podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> no, I had an opportunity to go to the uh, the NRA national. I saw that convention was in Indiana, and honestly, I I probably would not have gone uh if it would have been you know in nashville or someplace like that so but since it was in indianapolis and i'm real familiar with downtown indianapolis i knew i could just run up there and attend it but we ended up staying the night and uh, hung out with anthony pace from freedom hunters that's a cool and, guy. yeah <laughs> uh my neighbor went with me who's who's referred to in this podcast and from here on out as joe the neighbor he's actually doing some some video work for me as well so huh. yeah we we Is he video the super duper whitetail hunter no okay <laughs> no i'm not i'm not worthy to hang out with those guys <laughs> yeah I, i'm i'm not worthy no joe the neighbor's uh uh just he's a friend of mine and he just lives up the road here but anyway he's he traveled with me out to cody wyoming <clears throat> where else has he been with me decided he wanted to go to cody just like, yeah, I got time off. Let's go. Uh, he's down for anything. And if he doesn't, then he's That's a police. a great quality in a person. Yeah. I love he, that. He's a police officer in, in uh, Lawrenceburg. So, uh, and he's got a lot of seniority and he's got a lot of time built up. So it's a rare thing when he, you can't talk him into using a little bit of, of uh, scheduled time off to, to go screw around and uh, <laughs> just hit him on his days off. So we drove up to Indy. And hung out there for a few days. We got to meet a lot of cool people. Uh, Gary Robertson was there. Got to got to visit with Gary for a little bit. From nice, yeah, yeah carnivore, carnivore. 
Burnham Brothers game calls, Ruger ambassador. Man, that guy's connected. Yeah, he really is. And uh, yeah. he wrote it, wrote the book Eyes Front about predator calling. So that's a that's another another cool aspect of it. It's a great title for a book, especially about carnivores. Yeah, Eyes Front, and it's a well written book. He's been in the business for so long, so uh, it's always a good time to be around Gary. And and we sat there and and talked, I felt guilty because he, he was supposed to be sitting there working the Ruger booth and we were just like gabbing. I don't know how long we stood over on the side and talked, you know, and people were walking up and, and, uh, he, it's not that he was being rude to him, but it got to the point where I could tell that they wanted to talk to him. So I had to back out, <laughs> go away. but, uh, yeah, so I got to do that. And then I met a medal of honor recipient. Yeah. Whoa. Sammy Davis and not, um, uh, not the singer comedian, Sammy Davis, not Sammy Davis, Jr. Sammy Davis. That's his actual name. He was a Vietnam veteran and, uh, ended up buying two of his books and stood there and talked to him for a long time. You know, the outdoor, the, the whole outdoor show for me, um, I've kind of got, I, I don't enjoy it. There's some people that just love going to show shows. Anthony pace loves going to shows joe the neighbor loves going to shows they like doing that and i know heath enjoys going to shows um i don't know what it is man i think it's some kind of character flaw where it's like okay i've been here for 25 minutes and i'm ready to go you just got to go in with the mentality to to, to party man <laughs> i know i know it's 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 uh but i it was all stems back to the days and this is a segue for something we're going to talk to later, but we would have to go. And when I was a conservation officer, we'd have to go work the state fair and we'd have to go work the Indianapolis boat show. And you had to listen to all the game warden stories and you had to listen to all that stuff, you know, and, and guys running up to you and showing you their horn porn or their buck from three years ago. And, and, you know, it's like, surely you've seen this deer. And it's like, looks like a white tailed deer. I am so impressed. <laughs> What I want them to do is say, look at this deer. And then they show it to you. And it's actually a cow plot twist. Yeah. 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 <laughs> the ones, the guys that, that I always did enjoy talking to were the guys that uh, came up and they were houndsmen, they were coon hunters because the other officers didn't want to talk to them anyway. <laughs> Those are your people. Those are your yeah. people. Yeah. And we sit there and we talk about hounds and, and you know, every once in a while you'd, you'd, but we always had a good time. The, the deer and Turkey expo, um, when those guys would come up, but I just got tired of it. I hated it. Yeah. I hated the whole time. I felt I was there in my dress uniform and I was all, it was just, it felt like I was on display and I was there for a stupid question hour and, and it just sucked. I hated it. And so, <laughs> but now it's different. It really is different because there's a lot of opportunity in that, in that room. Uh, a lot of, a lot of interesting stuff. I found some really sick night vision thermal imaging stuff that i'm not i'm not going to reveal the name yet because uh we're trying to figure out how to i'm making contact with that company we'll just leave it at that so nice yeah, yeah i have a i love thermals man they're so fun i know you do. I never get tired you're a thermal of geek i am i am for fun and for hunting uh just for fun, owning them to like go out and look around. The desert is alive with creatures at night in the in the 
in the night. <laughs> so yeah, so you what, just go out there with your thermal. What yeah. does the desert have you ever looked at the desert during the day? Yeah, uh no, I've never looked through, in the desert during thermal. the day. <laughs> through, through thermal? Oh yeah, well it's just white out. You can't see anything. It depends on the time That's of the year. Wondering. If it's winter time, uh uh you can see, you know, but during the summer, no, nah, your screen is just completely white or black, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> You'll see some differences if like you're looking at a house, say, and, and the house is cooler than the than the desert sands, but since the sands can get to like 140, sometimes they can have a different contrast and so it can kind of be inverted that's what so, i was wondering if like you know yeah. a, a jackrabbit or something like they're they're obviously not 140 degrees yeah they're cool so would it be yeah. inverted and you could yeah. see stuff in the desert that way mm -hmm. yeah i don't uh i don't spend a lot of time out in the summertime out in the day very much i i go to work i clock in usually at 5 30 and i'm leaving the desert at 11 it's just I know it's a dry heat, but it doesn't matter. It's 110 is 110, and it is brutal. So, you, yeah, everyone's heading for shade, including us. <laughs> well, that's when we went to, when we were in the desert, the big desert over in uh, the Middle East, you know, it was, if you didn't watch, you know, idiots like me that were raised in the Midwest with humidity, when it gets to 85 degrees, you know, it's hot. And you know, you need to drink water and you need, you know, all this stuff. So you get to the desert climate and it's hot like that and you really don't feel it. You know, exactly. you don't, you don't feel it. So it sneaks up on you. And before you know it, you know, you look like a boiled lobster and sitting there in your tongue swollen up in your mouth. It's like, oh, I need water. All of our heat hydrate. casualties are from the Midwest at my, every year we have people that come in from out of country or out of state to work where I work and and to be like interns or do their summer projects or whatever PhD projects and all of our heat stress casualties all of them are from yeah. the midwest and like Minnesota and Michigan sure yep for they sure. just don't you don't expect how quickly you can just get smoked out there and the dryness you don't you don't sweat well you do sweat like a you sweat like crazy but right now it's 80 degrees and six percent humidity so that moisture just wicks off you in like a millisecond yeah so yeah anyway it's uh it's horrible in the summertime <laughs> long story short yeah yeah it was an interesting day though we um we we you know you were talking about conservation officers we were just had a guy well, i'm not come... ready to go there yet no oh. whenever you're i've got one more thing to tell us about keep going keep going i also got a bottle a signed bottle right josh michaelis of horse soldiers bourbon and it was signed by Mark Noosh. Horse, uh, horse soldiers? Horse soldiers, yep. The guys, that the Special Forces unit that were first into yes. Afghanistan. They wrote a book. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, there's been several. There was a movie. 12 Strong was a movie about this unit. Oh and, yeah, uh, seeing that now. So they, uh, yeah, Mark Noosh was at the Slippery Noodle. And uh, Anthony Pace, I didn't actually get to meet him. Anthony Pace was at the Slippery Noodle the night before. I'd filled him in on where to go in Indy, and uh, it's a it's a jazz bar, which is a super cool place to hang out in the yeah. evenings and stuff. And so that that night that before I got there, Mark Noosh was at the Slippery Noodle signing bottles, and Anthony picked one up for me. So dang, that's a friend yeah. right there. He yep. has a habit of hooking people up. I'm telling you what, man, there. You walk around with that guy and it's like, hey, you want to go eat lunch with the uh, executive board of directors for the NRA? 
it's like yeah yeah let's let's roll you know so i sit there and i eat lunch with uh general leroy cisco who is a retired lieutenant general and he has if you look him up and i'm i'm not even going to try to remember his nonprofit, but they've they've given away nine million dollars in homes homes new homes to veterans what? and yeah oh yeah he he makes appearances with george his, one of his neighbors is george Strait, and and george Strait. <laughs> yeah they'll, they'll be on stage together and and general cisco was a was a really cool guy we sat there and talked for a long time and and uh so you, you just you you have the when you go places like that and i'm not a i'm not a starstruck guy you know it's it's i don't that kind of stuff like when we we're shot chuck liddell was walking down the island people were the mma fighter him. chuck yeah. liddell yeah huh yeah chuck liddell's walking down through there and people are mobbing him and i was like oh there's chuck liddell you know and and i met general schwarzkopf one time at an nra convention what was when it was in indianapolis and uh you know it's just it's just people like the generals schwarzkopf cisco you know guys like mark noosh sammy davis it's more of a a respect thing you know it's just yeah. a a great you you stand there and you talk to a, a man that's been awarded the highest citation medal for bravery in the world in my opinion you know it's it's just one of those things that it it makes you it's not all it's more like you're not worthy to talk to this guy ultimate um, respect ultimate yeah. respect makes you question your own character your own principles you know things like that you know question if you know what have you done lately type thing <laughs> Uh, yeah yeah so, i mean and, i said that exact thing today we were listening to because in chosen the battle of chosen reservoir there's tons of medal of honors awarded and that's exactly mm -hmm. what we said in the truck we're like what are we doing these guys are out here like being total badasses and we're just like staring at the dirt you know what i mean like yeah what uh what what was the focus of that chosen reservoir book it was uh so it was written by a guy named hampton sides who wrote my favorite book blood and thunder which i've actually talked about before on this podcast but it was just it's it's called on desperate ground and it's a it's a metaphor or a i guess a direct quote of soon su talking about there's certain kinds of ground that an army can be on and like the worst kind of ground to be on is desperate ground where you're mm -hmm. trying to like flee or escape and uh yeah it was just about the whole battle of chosen reservoir from like the race to the yalu and then the retreat back to um hung nam and then the evacuation to the 38th parallel so right was it, it was focusing amazing. on was it written by a soldier or was it written by a marine no hampton sides is just a military historian so okay. um yeah he he uh you just gotta read the book it, what i love oh, about it is it it is history it's history but it's told from the perspective of the people that were there and he had yeah. like first first-hand interviews with those people there some of them not all of them but obviously because it was happened a long time ago but yeah anyway Which, it was an incredible book and man people both sides insane bravery you're just like wow yeah, yeah it's, just unbelievable. Yeah. it's unbelievable well you know getting back to the s or the the nra show i said there's a lot of opportunity in that room and that's why i go i hate going but i go because i i get to i mean i sat down with the i had lunch with the chief editor for american honey magazine for the rights whoa that that edits the whole magazine the american hunter for the nra 
and she wants to know more about hounds and and how hounds play into wildlife management uh safari club international one of the largest yeah. groups in the country you know i stood there and i talked to them and mm -hmm. and they saw my my hat and my shirt and they're like hey what do you do and and uh you know i told them what we did we broke it down and so we're going to be we're going to be doing some stuff with them in the not too distant future preserve so, protect promote yeah yeah all the always and that's that's my mission when i go into places like this it, that is my mission to represent houndsmen and get our story out there and get it back in that mainstream deal you know when you're standing there and you're talking to somebody from a um a thermal optics company and they're like what do you use it for and you start telling them you know you know the it's huge in competition coon hunting now we use them for hog hunting we use them for you know all kinds of things they're like wow we had no idea so when you open that dialogue up with them then they their wheels start turning and thinking man we haven't even touched that market we did we really don't know that much about it and so now they can start working on uh, uh, products that are going to be suitable for our crowd, you know, right, and find right. find how. And it's it's just it's just valuable I mean, ammo, you know. The the Underwood guy, Underwood Ammo. There were ammo companies everywhere, of course, <clears throat> but the guys in Underwood Ammo, you know, that now that we opened that up that dialogue with them, when I walk up to their booth, they're like, "Hey, man, we you know such and such bear hunter from Tennessee ordered ammo." And, you know, we, we're getting pictures of this kind of stuff. You know, we're getting pictures of, of bears that have been taken with our ammo that with hounds in them and stuff. So that's what it's going to take to, to really anchor us in this conversation about hunting and making it mainstream is getting out there, not just going to the hound events and talking to other houndsmen, but getting out there and talking to people that need to hear our story and need to know what it is. And, and that part of it, I don't get tired of. The rest of it, I can only look at so many black stock rifles and, you know, silencers and stuff like that. And it's like a big yawn fest for me. I just, but can like, you get tired of looking at enough rock locks? No, I cannot. <laughs> enough flinters. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 No, I, uh, yeah, there weren't any, there were some of those there. They had some historical, historical cases. But anyway, there was also a conservation officer booth set up there. One of the guys that I used to know and, and, uh, I didn't even, I didn't even walk up to the booth. <laughs> <laughs> You're just like, oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's like another lifetime ago. Flashbacks. <laughs> yeah. 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 And there were some good times. I'm not going to lie. It oh, was, for sure. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I, it was funny that you said that. Cause I was talking to one today and I don't know, we were just kind of chatting and you know how it is. I didn't want to get in his way. He was talking to some young students, they were recruiting, you know, but they were chilling. And so I came up to him and talked and, you know, that was something I was really considering too, myself. And, uh, you know, we were just talking about it in the the draw results and stuff. And he told me something I thought was kind of interesting. I want to bounce this off you. I, I kind of wanted to bring it up is he said that by far the majority of poaching is done by a very small majority of serial poachers. You ever heard that before? Yes. Yep. Do you think that's true? Yes. I think, uh, I think the way most fish and wildlife agencies work, um, your, your average uniformed officer out there. I mean, we've got some outstanding game wardens out there that, that are out there fighting wildlife crime. There's no doubt about it, but, um, uh, 
the way bureaucracy and the the higher ups want the officers to work we only have the time and the opportunity to catch the dumb ones you know <laughs> the, seriously seriously i mean um you know how many how how skilled do you have to be to to sit in the bushes and and watch somebody cast a line in the water and then walk down and check fishing license you know um and but but yes i agree with that because most of the uh major wildlife investigations are conducted it, it all comes from i'm not trying to devalue the game wardens that listen to this podcast because but i also understand what goes on there a lot of that information that leads to those big time investigations are from the 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 game wardens that are out there working in the field you know out there working every day they know the information they know that you know their district commander wants them to be down on a boat riding around on a boat and doing this sort of stuff and trying to schedule their time when they really know that they need to be over here working on this serial poacher, this guy that, uh, you know, is, has got a long history or they know he's got a long history of, of nefarious activities, but they just simply don't have time. So you feed it to the investigators, the, the advanced investigators and, and most States have an investigation section. Now I, I, I like real life detective type, guys that are really highly skilled and highly trained everything from forensic uh computer forensics to advanced interview and interrogation techniques to you know all kinds of stuff so did it's you not, ever do any of that any do any of what did you do any of the investigation stuff uh the only the only time that i had was about six months when i worked undercover as an undercover officer and i hated it oh i was gonna it ask was, it was cool. way it was way too early in my career uh, and, um, uh, it was, uh, I, I just, I wanted to be out there. It was too slow paced for me for what we were doing. The op that we were working was, I did not enjoy it. It was not something that got my blood boiling. Mm -hmm. Uh, they were looking at, they were looking at, uh, amphibian and reptile trade, which was a huge deal. Uh, um, okay. Wait, 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 break that down for like the pet trade or something. Well, people would come out and come out into Indiana and they would pick up they they would harvest all these land terrapins, box turtles, red ear sliders, all this stuff, and then they would privatize them and send them to the pet trade. Huh. So they go out here and collect all this stuff. And then so really what they were doing is they were going out and collecting our natural resource, bringing yep. it in and then profiting off of it. Yep. And and the pet trade. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. That's so crazy. You never think of just like benign north american species as being in the pet trade you always think of just like exotic like crazy rainforest animals and stuff well that's not, how the that's how the python cowboys turtles. that's how the yeah. python cowboys making a name for himself down there it's all based on that pet trade well but not anymore that's what he was saying like i didn't even think about that which blew my mind but that's where it came from yeah right right and and they were apparently the pet trade people were making a big dent on that iguana population too which really surprised me people stopped breeding them and would just go out and catch them in the wild and they made that illegal to transport them and so that was like a huge loss to the collection that was crazy that's that's kind of the beautiful thing about wildlife but the only management. reason the only reason there are boa constrictors and pythons and the other oh, yeah. is because yeah. because of you know, the pet some trade. some yeah. gangbanger you know tried to eat his pit bull when he took it out and he you know he, he dumped it in the everglades <laughs> Adios, <serpiente. laughs> yeah yeah i, I freaking 
I, I the, can't believe uh, the Python got too aggressive at the strip club, so the strip club <laughs> owner had to take it out and get rid of it. So it didn't they were have like, Seth, get rid of this thing for us. Ew, yeah. I don't want to touch it. <laughs> yeah. Hey, yeah. hey, yay or nay for having snakes as pets? Yes or no? Who me? Yeah. Nah, I don't. I don't have any. That doesn't do anything for me. I'm the same. One of my best buddies has a pet snake in his house, a rattlesnake in his house, and I'm yeah. like, I don't get it. I just don't get it. I don't get it. But whatever. I mean, different strokes for different folks. Yeah, I mean, I they're was... fascinating. They're fascinating. We worked a whole we worked a whole case on on uh, you know, it's called herp scam. Where we we actually would go out and we Sounds went like a out medical case. Yeah, we went out <laughs> and seized a bunch of illegal snakes and stuff. Well, I, like what? What was the craziest snake you saw? Now I'm gonna Kaboom put because I asked this guy a bunch of crazy stories. I'm gonna ask you the same too. I can't believe I've never done this before. But wait, what was the species you said? A gaboon viper. Whoa! Yeah, I've seen it. we that we had puff adders, gaboon vipers. When we we're okay, so we we're getting ready to go out a, and do these. Oh, we we're that's get, badass. We we're getting ready to go out and do <laughs> these raids. Okay, on on these herp guys, and um, um, so they were talking. They were trying to train us how to catch, catch these snakes. And it's like, dude, if that freaking if, and we sit through this bit, we sit through this big, uh, presentation, and it's like, this is the deadliest snake in the world. If it bites you, you will die in 0.6 seconds before you bend over backwards in a violent manner and kiss your own ass goodbye. You know, so it's like. And then they're like, okay, now we're going to show you guys how to handle snakes. <laughs> and it's like, okay, if this, if, if we're in here and we're doing this raid and for some reason this aquarium gets knocked over and that snake gets loose, we want to show you shovels, that. shovels. I'm like, dude, I'm carrying a freaking 45 <laughs> on me and it's dying. I'm not picking that thing up. So we were, we were working with a Cobra, a King Cobra. Oh my god. Oh yeah. And I'm like, I'm not I'm not was it huge? It. Yeah, oh yeah, he was a big one. And so they were showing us they're like, oh, and they just turned him loose on the ground. And the 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 guy the subject matter expert on this, and he he really was. He'd been bitten by he's one of our officers had been bitten by a cobra a few times, and he's developed a uh an immunity to the antivenom. What? Oh yeah. Yeah, it's he was on what? TV shows and stuff like that. Yeah, he, he doesn't even... His thumb is permanently crooked because it did all that nerve damage and necrop, you know, necroptic stuff in his thumb. But anyway... Oh, so, wait, so he's immune to the anti-venom or he's immune yes. to the venom itself? Anti-venom. So the anti-venom does not work if for him If he gets anymore. bit, he's dead. Oh. And he still handles it. And okay? he's handling a cobra. Oh, yeah. So he throws a cobra out there on the ground and he said, okay, if the cobra hits the ground... I want you to take this blanket and throw it over over that cobra because evidently and he showed us he said as soon as you cover a cobra like that and you just use a bed sheet and um he's and he says as soon as it gets covered up that cobra is going to raise its head off of the ground and you'll be able to see exactly where its head is at that point so that was his technique that was his technique he said if you can't see its tail take your snake hook and just take its head off. Just do like a Mickey Mantle swing <laughs> and kill that sucker. He says, do not try to get it, get it off the ground. You know, that is, oh, wow. Yeah. We were taught in our training that he, he 95%. Could, he, 
He oh, could. He he could. Well, but he didn't want us to. You know, that's yeah, duh. Uh, You'll yeah. end up with a crooked like, thumb. <laughs> don't worry. If it hits the ground and I can see its head through the sheet, I'm gonna shoot it with a shotgun. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, hey, if you haven't seen a Gaboon Viper, look at them. They are so cool looking. Oh, they, yeah. They're they look like a pile of leaves. Yeah, they make they, Yeah, they make my skin crawl, man. You walk in. We had these this building that was lined with all these snakes and stuff, and you walk in, and they're all sitting there looking at you through the glass. <laughs> and I was just like, I mean, I'm not scared of snakes at all. But yeah, that me was, neither. That was but... eerie. When you, when you stand there and you can look eye to eye with a, a timber rattler or any venomous snake, you know, the pupils going up and down and stuff. It's just like, <laughs> they cast spells on you. They'll get you. Yeah. yeah, I'm not afraid of snakes at all, but that doesn't mean I don't give them a serious amount of respect. And I don't, like when people have pet ones and they want you to hold it, I'm not about holding snakes. No, man. I'm good. I'm, I'm good. good. Yeah, yeah, I'm good. I'm like, yeah, no, nah, I'm, I'm cool. Like, I'll hold I have, one, I guess, but. Eh. I have no problem, like, you know, catching the rat snakes and yeah. you know, stuff around here. My wife, my wife will go out of her way. I came up, I was coming home one day and came up the hill and topped the hill going down the road. And we used to live right next door to her parents. So her and her mom used to run around together all the time. I come up over the hill and my mother-in-law's car is sitting in the road and my wife's standing up on the bank of the road and they're talking and I can see my wife pointing and she's pointing to the left and she's pointing to the right and she's motioning her to come forward. And I pulled up beside him and I said, what are you guys doing? I looked down and there's a king snake in the road. And my wife is trying to direct my mother-in-law on where the tire needs to go to run over the snake. Oh, a king that's snake? How, that's how much, but they do, it doesn't matter. A snake is a snake. And that's the only snake to them is a, is a dead snake. I just jump <laughs> out of the truck, grab it, throw it off in the weeds. Yeah. I said, <laughs> leave them alone. You know, that's your friend. Yeah. King snakes are yeah. humongous. King snake, little known fact, people. King, if it has the name King, that means it prefers to eat other snakes. King cobras are huge snake-eating snakes. Mm -hmm. So even though they're terrible, they are your buddy. Yeah. And uh, king snakes are not terrible, and they're always your buddy. I love. Anytime I see a king snake, I'm like, yes, that is ten less rattlesnakes that exist in this world. So good job, buddy. Ricky Tikki Tave is my is my favorite. Wait, what? Have you ever heard of Ricky Tikki Tave? You gotta I look know it up, man. I don't man. know anything. I'm not even gonna. I'm not even gonna reveal it. It's a book. It's a book. And it's about it's about two cobras and a little vermin that preys on cobras. So that's all I'm gonna say. I just Googled it. I'll leave it there. <laughs> yep. Yep. No, they had a cartoon out of it. It made a one of those little animated shows out of it when I was a kid, man. It fascinated me. But anyway, so it was like nineteen fifteen ish. I'm just kidding. Dude. <laughs> i did see something though today that's kind of kind of unique it's uh my generation generation x 1960 was that 1965 to 1980 or 1960 to 85 or something like that the last generation to experience life without cell phones without cable tv without the internet without with uh having uh no remote control tvs you know some of that sort of stuff I mean, that, yeah, that's weird. I mean, well, like, we didn't have the internet really until like the, well, we had it, but it was not widely accessible in New Mexico public schools until like, I remember when we first started taking computer literacy classes, but yeah. I was in elementary school. 
And yeah, I mean, that was cool. Those were, that's crazy. It is my mom and dad were just like kids these days. Can't even imagine living without a cell phone. They're like, I live three quarters of my life without one, you know, right. like, yep. it, it is yep. crazy. The world is changing so fast. Hey, I was going to ask you, is that the craziest thing you ever saw was the snake den? <laughs> oh, you mean as an officer? Yeah. Um, we got sidetracked. I wanted to ask you that because I asked him, I was like, what's the craziest thing you ever saw? And he was like, yeah, we walked into a barn and there was like 500 elk and antelope skulls in there. And I was like, whoa. Hmm. Um, that was a pretty, that was pretty wild, but, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Probably, maybe, I don't know. Dumbest Probably person the- you ever encountered. Um, <laughs> I like you. You really had to think about that one. <laughs> there's been so many, Seth. There's been so many. That's a, that's a hard. I mean, there's there's several that come to mind. Um, probably, probably the guy that. And this is just a funny story. It has nothing to do with towns. We were responsible for watercraft enforcement in the state of Indiana, and uh, <clears throat> we would get detailed to go work different reservoirs in our district. And we were working a reservoir one night and a boat goes flying by us and it's pitch black nighttime speed limit on an Indiana Lake is 10 miles per hour. That's it. And I mean, it's suckers on plane and they're just, did you have lights on your boat? Oh yeah. We had lights on our boat. We're sitting there just like, screw it. Yeah. We were actually talking to another, another bunch of boaters, you know, (laughs) So, we but the only, <laughs> the only thing that you have is navigational lights. You know, there's no red and blue. Mm-hmm. We're not riding around out there at the red and sure, blue. Sure, of course, of course. So they had no clue who we were <clears throat> and they came real close to us. It's like, Hey, do you guys have a nice evening? We're going to go talk to these people. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, we get them stopped and the guy drive, there's, there's two men and a woman in the boat or two, two men and two women in the boat. And the guy driving, man, he was freaking sloshed. He was just like, he was so drunk. He didn't even know what he did. He was, he was wasted. And, uh, we, we ran him through all the field sobriety tests and all that stuff. And we got him in our boat. We, he couldn't get a life jacket on hardly. His wife had to help him put a life jacket on. That's how drunk he was. That's, that's actually one of the, the things that we look at. It's like, how hard is it to put a life jacket on? Right. <laughs> right. Right. But when you, but when you're drunk and it's not something that you do all the time, man, you see all kinds of stuff. You see him putting them on upside down. You see him <laughs> trying to like the old May West, the orange ones that wrap around your head. Yeah. Yep. You've been putting them on since you were a kid and the, and the strap falls down behind you. I've seen guys try to put them on like up through their crotch and hook them in and and all kinds of stuff, but this guy get your G string on. <laughs> he got he had the G string life jacket going on, and uh, so we get him over in a boat, and we've we're now we've got the two women were not intoxicated. Both men were. The women didn't feel comfortable operating the boat. So what do we do? We hook a rope up. We're towing them into the dock. As we're going across the water, we can feel the the I'm I, we can see that the the boat and feel the boat being engaged, the other boat being engaged and put into reverse. The the other guy in the boat had taken the helm and was trying to back up and and doing, you know, trying to break Bob's our out rope. And Bob's done, oh, yeah. we got to go. Yeah, he's <laughs> like, oh, we're getting away, you know. And 
I shine my light back there. I said, turn that engine off. And he flips me off. So we oh, just, damn. we just come back around. I reach in, get him hooked up, drag him over on my boat. And he was just cussing me and, and all this other stuff. And, um, get him cuffed, set him down. He's, we put a life jacket on him. And when we cuff somebody, we always transport them with a, the old May West life jacket. You know, you don't want the head above. Yeah. Yeah. They can float. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, so we get him all the way to the dock and the whole time he's just running his mouth, running his mouth. He's like, I gotta take a leak. I gotta take a leak. I'm gonna piss in your boat and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, we get all the way up there. He goes, I'm telling you, I gotta take a, take a whiz. And his wife says, says i'll help him i'll help him do it and this this is a woman that loved him her here's her drunk husband that she's she's already Making been an ass out of him oh yeah yeah she's already had her whole evening ruined because of her drunk husband the night on the lake is down the down the shitter and she knows she's gonna have to come and get him maybe i don't know if she went and got him or not but she says <laughs> i'll help him so i said okay so there was some riprap there and he was trying to walk down over the riprap and i was like don't go over the riprap don't walk down over that riprap He's like, I'm fine. He, and he almost fell down. I reach out and I grab him. I turn my flashlight on. And he goes, he says, the wife was fed up too at this point. She was fed up with him. She was fed up with me. She was fed up with the whole situation. So I turn my light on and he goes, what are you trying to see? Something you haven't got? And I said, just deadpan. I said, no, sir. I'm just trying to make sure she can find it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Did she at least laugh or is no, she just completely no, over it? No, her reaction, she looked at me and she looked at him. She's like, both of you just need to shut up. Just shut up. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, no, it's, I mean, it's a good one. It sounds like, uh, I don't know how you, how do you like deal with people like that? You know, cause they're just asses. You know what I mean? I guess you just gotta be stone cold about it, huh? You just gotta not care at all. Yeah, you just, yeah, you just, I, you don't know. That's not actually, that's not actually right. I mean, I've, I've taken guys to jail, ridden to jail with them and had some pretty good talks with them. You know, the guys are like, man, my, my freaking life's a wreck. And you just Damn. talk to them all the way to jail. You know, it's like, there's, you don't have to live like that. You don't have to man. make that choice. You know, yeah. I imagine. I've, I've shared the gospel of Jesus Christ in, in my truck with guys on the way to jail. Damn. That's and I pray, you should I write pray, a book. I prayed <laughs> with them. I prayed with them in the Sally port before I took them into jail. I really have. Wow. Yep. Damn. Not everybody. Some of them, some of them you did. The devil was there and you weren't going to pray with those. You know, you pray for them, but you weren't praying with them because you didn't know who you were praying to. After that guy took a leak, he probably calmed down and you guys became best friends. I can see it, right? No, <laughs> no, no, man. He doesn't send cards or anything like that. So he didn't show up at my retirement party. Hey, did you ever do that thing where you guys set up the deer decoy with the luminescent eyes and shooting spotlight, like people spotlighting deer? Did you ever get to ambush people? I, I, that's what I, when I wanted to be, no, when I was considering being a conservation officer, that's what my dream was, was to catch night poachers like like um spotlighters and stuff do you ever do yeah. that yeah we were that was actually um started there was some work being done with wildlife <clears throat> decoys or actually called you know wildlife decoys people call them the dummy deer or whatever but there was some work being done with wildlife decoys right before i got hired in the late 1980s i got hired in 1990 and so we were on the front end of that and it was amazing 
that it was so it, fun it was amazing we'd, we'd <laughs> get all these taxidermy deer and stuff it started out with just things like uh those reflective some reflective tape and you use what's called an eye board and eye board like e-y-e I, or like i i e-y-e like oh we, call, we yeah. call them eye boards and you just set eye boards out in a field in an area you always went to areas that you had complaints of somebody driving through there and jack lighting at night shooting deer from the road or shooting whatever and so they started out with eye boards where you just use two pieces of elect uh tape or reflective tape on the end of of um thumbtacks what yeah and you just, and that's enough people wouldn't even see a deer oh, body yeah. they just you see got, the lights yep you got to put them out far enough where and you're just at that point we we would get a few people that would shoot at those but the thing we were looking for is those people that were shining, you know, looking for the game yeah. and then yeah. you'd stop them. And if they had a firearm, then that was a violation. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but then it trans, it, I said this back in the 1990s and I'll get back to this, but it trans, uh, it, it moved on and developed into robotics and stuffed animals and, and servos and, and all kinds of stuff, you know, real taxidermy mounts. What's a and, servo? Uh, it's an electric motor that that operates off of a remote control, like for a remote so control. So it can boat move its head car. and stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. We had <laughs> we had deer that we had deer mounts that could flick an ear, move their head, flip their tail, um, things like that. That's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> but people caught onto it real quick. You know, they caught into mm. caught onto it so quick. I mean, they they had to see breath coming out of it and it taking a step or two and you know the optics got better and back but in those all days, you'd have to do is see the spotlight and then you guys have a uh a, a justification to pull over someone right that's debatable that's debatable whether mm. or not you actually do you know some guys would say that it's um they would wait to see probable cause for the stop Mm -hmm. uh you know a, a traffic violation or something like that some some attorney or prosecutors would say that you know casting the ray of a white light across traffic lanes is actually a, a traffic violation so you can make the stop in indiana okay. in indiana yeah, yeah, yeah. um but the 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 thing that most people don't understand and even a lot of police officers don't understand is you don't have to have probable cause to stop somebody you just have to have a reasonable suspicion that they're commit they're they're either commit about to commit or they're committing a crime you know that's called a terry stop terry versus ohio you have to have a reasonable suspicion that criminal activity is afoot so it, the magic of that all happens in the report writing afterwards you know you've got to show that you had so many documented uh, complaints from this particular area of this particular activity and you were working this area for that activity you know in this case it was jack lighting and somebody was coming down and now somebody's out there shining a light mm -hmm. around mm -hmm. so there's your reasonable suspicion you've got so many calls you found the dead deer somebody's been doing something so now you've got that reasonable suspicion that that is going on well, you know, I was going to say, I've been pulled over. So spotlighting in New Mexico is illegal if you have sporting arms and you're shining into areas that could contain livestock and wildlife, which is essentially anywhere. But I've been pulled over eight years ago when I first started hunting with dogs. I would spotlight out of my truck and I had a custom wooden door that fall down in my Tacoma, like window down. And my pointer would jump out and chase stuff, mostly rabbits. But like I got pulled over two times and uh, 
I never, uh, the both times he's a sheriff and both times he's like, Hey, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, I'm spotlighting for this dog. And he's like, do you have any weapons in the car? I was like, no, I have nothing. Just this dog. And I had my proclamation ready with all the bookmarks and highlights on every thing. And he, both times it was like a crazy, pleasant experience. He was just like, Oh, okay. Looks really yeah. fun. Have fun. <laughs> and I would just like keep going on with my day or not. Yeah. So yeah, anyway. Jack, right. Jack lighting rabbits used to be a big deal in Indiana. But it's shooting, obviously, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's weird. I, yeah, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's common. I guess kids do it all the time here, but it's always out in the middle of absolute nowhere. So, I don't know. It's never really a. I guess if you're doing it in a populated area, that'd be a problem. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever? Uh, did you ever? Um, well, let me ask you this, because you're on the. Hmm. I don't know how to ask this question. Because <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to say it's stupid. You have been on both sides. You know what I mean? You are an avid hound hunter yourself. Mm -hmm. And you also were a conservation officer. Did it give you a unique perspective to kind of live in both of those worlds and kind of bridge that gap? I know you've used it obviously to amazing advantage for the Hounds on XP podcast mm -hmm. to give legal advice to coon hunters. But when you were an officer, do you think it helped you kind of bridge that gap? Um. You're right. It, it, that's the inspiration behind this podcast. You know, one of the things that when I got hired, we were right on the tail end. We're just coming out of the major fur boom that, that people, the people my age and older will understand as the, the fur trade, you know, the fur boom era. So what year was that? What year it would have been, it would have been through the middle set 1970s to the mid 1980s. That's when you could get, you know, $40 for a, a raccoon. For Whoa. a raccoon pelt, you know, fox, red fox in this area were were going for sixty to a hundred dollars, and and so you didn't see roadkill raccoons on the road in those days. What it, are they getting now? Get it into perspective. Oh my gosh, I think you got to pay fur buyers now to take them. Yeah, you know, like one is yeah, one, one or two. Yeah, one or two dollars for a two X. You know, yeah. It's $2 crazy. for a big coon that, yeah, if you can find somebody to buy them, most of the fur buyers around here quit buying coons. Why? They, they can't, they can't sell them. What are they going to do with them? And yet in the 80, in the late seventies, you could get $40 for one. I wonder what, oh, yeah. with inflation, what that would be today. Okay. Yeah. So I'm glad you said that you need to put that into perspective because that is an incredibly valuable animal. Yeah. Yeah, you could, uh, I don't know, what would that be? $120 for a raccoon now, probably? Probably, I mean, somewhere in that range, yeah. Yeah, $40 was was a, a big deal. I remember, you know, my grandfather made 40 or $100 a week working, you know. People worked for a dollar an hour in the in the 1960s, and then the, by the mid-70s, you can get 40. You can get a whole worth of, week's worth of pay out of one raccoon. $40 in 1979 is equivalent purchasing power to about $212 today. Thank so you, you inflation. Holy crap. Yeah. So what oh that led to, gosh. what that led to was just like any time that you put a dollar value on a wildlife resource, then it's going to be exploited. So what we were seeing, there were a lot of great trappers out there and a lot of great houndsmen, a lot of great coon hunters. The ones that caused all the problem were the people that are, you know, now they're, they're stripping wire and cooking meth and stuff like that. Cause that's where the money is. They don't care what it is. They just want to make money and they don't want to work. Yep. So we had a lot of people back then who I'll tie this all together, but we had a lot of people back then who were, who would 
smoke den trees and set woods on fire try to try to they would yeah trespassing um you know Whoa. cutting fence and driving through agricultural fields they would just trespass leave gates open livestock running they're criminals yeah yeah they're just criminals they don't care about your property those are not houndsmen those are not hunters so what happened you get that bad element that infiltrated because of the money in the fur trade then when the when the money dried up they went away but the reputation of the, the coon hunter stayed the, and all the things that the, the game wardens had to deal with from that time didn't go away you know i i got hired with guys that lived through that whole thing and lived through that whole nightmare and and when they found out i was a coon hunter as a as a rookie recruit you know, man, they laid into me. It's like, oh, we got a damn coon hunter. We got a, you know, we got a coon. Ah, coon, how'd you get in here? You know how when it, <laughs> you know how to know, you know when to, uh, how to tell when a coon hunter's lying. You know, and sir, yes, sir, when his lips are moving. You know, you know that that's just was the standard answer, and <laughs> I heard it all. But the thing that thing that game wardens fail to realize is that most of the bad coon hunters the bad players that that were out there hunting raccoons and trapping raccoons and and basically poaching raccoons they all moved on to something else you know they were stealing timber they were snagging paddlefish they were stripping wire off construction sites they were criminals that's that's all their deal was and but so so the coon hunter was was extremely misrepresented and misunderstood following that because all the serious coon hunters that just hunted for the love of it they didn't quit when the fur prices went yeah down. exactly so yeah. so as i progressed in my career i saw that the stigma was still there and i never liked it you know you would see officers that would they would change their days off so that they could attend a ducks unlimited or a national wild turkey federation banquet you know so that they could go to that on duty but they wouldn't stop at their local coon club and stop in and, and talk to these guys because those are coon hunters right those are, right not, yeah i'm not talking to those guys so that's that's some of the the stigma i saw and and some of the misunderstanding of them and and coon hunters weren't fair either you know this is another thing we ought to talk about is the policy making and stuff like that. But what well, we'll explain. Well, anytime you see, like you, you'll see, you still see it, especially on the, on the social media, you know, somebody will make a post about something they don't agree with in wildlife management. <clears throat> so their favorite target. Yeah. Favorite target. These, what? Yeah. <laughs> Their favorite target are the biologists or the game wardens, you know, because we're the ones that are out there in the field doing the work. Yeah. And we're the face of these departments that we work for. And there are times when we have to do things that, you know, if you look at letter of the law stuff, if I enforce the law to the letter, there aren't any reasons that, can contribute to that there's no excuses for it if i'm just black and white and when you get an officer that takes a case at face value 
you know, I'm standing under a tree. It's July. I've got a rifle and I just shot a raccoon out of a tree. Cut and dry case, right? Used to be, used to be as a violation, but through the work of organizations like the Hoosier tree dog Alliance, now you've got written permission and you can assist the agricultural community. You can assist uh, homeowners yeah. with written permission to do that stuff. So that's what I put my energy into was working on the Hoosier Tree Dog Alliance and going to those fish and wildlife conservation councils and making friends with those, those other people. Now, the problem I had as a game warden and the thing that, that a lot of houndsmen are unfair about towards biologists and game wardens is we love to hunt. We're not anti-hunters for yeah. the most part, you know. Most people that come into this profession, there's certain states that are starting to really get away from this, certain colleges that are pushing our wildlife professionals in directions that aren't going to be conducive to hunters in a few years, I'm afraid. But most of the experienced biologists and conservation officers have such a deep love for wildlife that they're willing to dedicate their life to it. And I've, I've used this example before. Most of the biologists that I know are, are very intelligent. They could be making six figure incomes with, you know, as nuclear physicists, <laughs> you know, they don't <laughs> they, as engineers, but they chose the science route of biology and, and that's what they, it's a huge pay cut for them. Really. They're, they're sacrificing a lot to go out there and work on wildlife management issues when they could be working in the private sector. Even if they're a biologist for a, a Texas ranch, you know, managing yeah, quail, yeah. managing quail, you got your house white tail. Yeah. White tail. You got your house paid for, you got your truck paid for, you got all this stuff paid for, but it's like, nope, I'm going to do this because this is important. And we lose then you that. got dumb ones like me that just like to look at jackrabbits. Yeah, no <laughs> doubt. I wasn't including you in those ones that could make you making six years. So. Two said, plus two equals most. seven. I said most. No, no, I, I, I often include you in that conversation. So that leads me to this part. What happens is, is guys like me, we get disgruntled with the politics that get attached to wildlife Absolutely. management, you know, and you'll get there. I'm sure I, I already did. am. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and there's just so many, the things that, that, often escapes people is it's not the game warden. It's not the biologist way up the chain from that game warden. You're seeing sitting in his truck, several levels above him. You go all the way through the rank structure of, of that department, that department. And then you get to executive assistant directors, and then you get to the director of the department. And then you get to uh, a, a person in the governor's office that knows the director that he reports to. And then you get to the governor, the governor appoints that director for that director of your DNR fish and wildlife, whatever you want to call it. That guy doesn't have to know anything about fish and wildlife management. In my career, we had a guy that was, when I started, we had a guy that was uh, uh, in charge of the public parks in Vigo County, Indiana. They got appointed by the governor, who was also from Vigo County, Indiana. So yeah. this old guy was over here Sounds doing familiar. his thing. He was he was getting all the support and he was talking, saying the right things and looking real popular. And next thing you know, 
he's the director of the DNR. And guess who takes orders from the director of the DNR in Indiana? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Chris Powell sitting out here <laughs> in his truck. Seth Hall out here, you know, doing biology work. He sets the tone. He sets the direction. So, and politics are always a bad thing when it comes to wildlife management. Comes to anything. <laughs> You're right about that. You're right yeah, about that. It comes to anything. Yeah. And the problem is that, you know, social media has brought us all together in a way that allows us to communicate, but everyone seems to become a wildlife expert the second they get behind a keyboard. And we have lots to learn. And I'm not a wildlife, you know, like, you know, you're a rat biologist. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and so, and so, like, Look what I'm saying is, <laughs> hey, don't you disrespect. That's an amazing animal. <laughs> and so, anyway, um, yeah. It, there is, it's so complicated. It's so complex. Look, use what Python Cowboy was saying as a metaphor for how the pet trade was actually helping get rid of an invasive animal. I mean, you wouldn't, this is, there was a overpopulation. I'm going to use this as a perfect example of how complicated wildlife management get. I'm going to keep it in a nutshell. There's a place off the coast of California. There's a set of islands out there. They were colonized by people. And they released all kinds of animals out there. There was like buffalo and mule deer let out out there. Anyway, there was a Channel Islands. That's they're called the Channel Islands. There's a Channel Island fox out there. This is really cool. Native Americans would go to those islands and get those foxes because they've lost pretty much all of their fear instinct from predators because there was no predators. And you would, the first colonists that got there would say you would go to sleep on your sleeping bag, wake up in the morning, and one of those foxes would be like sleeping on your feet sometimes for the warmth. Like they're just no not kidding. afraid of people at all. And so their population was plummeting. And they and so uh, one of the professors at NMSU, he did he was the one that did this whole study with a bunch of other people, obviously. And their population was plummeting, and they're like, what is happening? And so they collared a bunch of these foxes. Well, they ended up finding all their GPS and radio collars inside golden eagle nests. And so then, which we all know golden eagles are the worst animal ever. And so we, next pronghorn, uh, we went to the golden eagle, we, they went to the golden eagle nest, found all their collars in there. And they were like, why are the golden eagles killing all these foxes? Well, it turns out golden eagles used to only migrate. They found this after years of studying, going all the way through the food chain from the top to the bottom. Golden eagles would migrate away from the Channel Islands and they used to, but now that feral pigs lived on the island, there was a year-round food source for them, piglets. Mm -hmm. And they would stay and eat more foxes and piglets. And so that was the problem. So they had to eradicate all the pigs to help the foxes. And you would never expect that. Everything is so complicated. Yeah. And so that it's just a it was just a cool experiment, I guess, that kind of shows or a, a cool case study that shows how interconnected and complicated everything can be. And uh man, yeah. <laughs> it's it's, yeah, it's, uh, uh, it's a lot more it's a lot more complicated than just the coyotes are eating all the turkeys or like whatever you know what right, I mean? right right and the, you know it's it's more i'm more concerned well i'm not more concerned about it. the reason we build this podcast is to try to educate people on what's actually going on you know and that the biologists and the game warden out there are not responsible for the, the rules that are being made and the, the, the laws directly, you know, a lot of times you look at some of the wildlife laws that are being implemented. They're totally unreasonable. They're totally, you look at the, look at the mountain lion deal in Utah or the trapping ban here. That, that <laughs> was the trapping ban in, in New Mexico. 
but the Utah deal is a perfect example. The, the wildlife professionals out there, for my information, were secretly cheering on the Utah Houndsman Association, these groups that were trying to defeat this bill. Um, and then, but it had nothing to do with wildlife management. It had to do with politics. It had we to do with said that. Yeah. Yeah. It had yeah. to do with politics. You look at what's going on in Colorado has to do with politics. The wolf is a politically charged animal that, that, that a lot of money can be made off of for certain groups. And so it's, they've got a lot of pull and yeah. So, and that's the, the trapping ban Roxy's law, because like a dog got its foot caught in a foothold trap, you know, and it was just like, it was just a way that people weaponize votes by yep. preying on a feeling that a extreme subset of an anti-hunting minority is very loud. Yeah. And yeah, that was a real loss. And I can already tell you every, every pro professional I've ever known and worked with was against that law. Even yeah. people that had no idea, once you explain it to them, they're like, that's insane. The state is huge and empty. Why is it illegal? You know what I mean? Right, right. So, yeah, that, and, and that's what's sad. When when just raw data is always weaponized. I mean, look at, that's the same thing with climate change. I well, mean, it's a perfect example. And the ignorance is on both sides. I'm not- Of course. I, I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to just sit here and praise game wardens because- Game wardens do some stupid stuff. I was a supervisor long enough to know that game wardens do stupid stuff too. People and do stupid stuff. That's yeah. exactly right. People make mistakes. People do stupid stuff. But just like the 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 officers would not stop at the coon club when you start showing them that there are people that go to that club that want to use that club for things like hunter education. Holy crap! Really? You know, DuPont, the a coon hunter club, coon hunting club over here in DuPont started a really good hunter education course. And several of the members became volunteer hunter ed instructors because an officer stopped in there. And now you've got volunteers who are helping you accomplish your mission as a game warden. Holy crap. That's awesome. Now, instead yeah. of spending 10 hours my, of my day standing there teaching the same material over and over. I can stop in for an hour, two hours while I'm on patrol. I can patrol there to it, do what I need to do, and then yeah. go work on stuff. I can't, a, 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 vol a volunteer can't go out and enforce fishing game laws, but they yeah. can teach under it. Exactly. So, and it's a chain reaction because it's yeah. community, organic community-based, like, exactly. growth. Exactly. Yeah. So all these clubs, and I'm speaking totally on Indiana, but I know that Ohio and, and Illinois and, you know, the Midwestern states all have coon hunting clubs where they hold events and things like that. Those are all avenues to, to use to recruit more hunters. And we should be exactly. utilizing it. Yeah. We should be utilizing. Definitely. You know, there's no reason why you've got officers changing their days off so they can go rub elbows with, with people that can afford to spend $5,000 on a, on a duck stamp print signed print original print but you won't go talk to these guys over here at the coon club yeah or the kid well kids i mean that's the yeah. big one too yeah the i would uh yeah it's man but i also wasn't Bruce I also, Powell, the world's complicated <laughs> yeah i also wasn't easy on coon hunters though either back in the day you know 
They didn't what? get a free. They didn't get a free pass because I was a coon hunter. What's the uh, What's the silliest thing you ever saw? I'm just gonna ask you that because I love those kinds of things. There's just all kind. I mean, there's a lot of different stuff, but but one one. <laughs> this is kind of a funny story. We were out working one night and we heard a dog treat up this holler, and our mo was, you know, we would work, when we would go out and do night patrol especially and we did we ran we ran details back before it was legal to hunt in the summertime uh, with her landowner permission we would we would go and work coon hunters through the through the summertime it was illegal to be out there killing coons we knew guys were out there doing it so that's what we got paid to do so we go work it and and i knew how i knew how it happened you know because i was a coon hunter I grew up on the tailgate of a 73 Chevy and pitching rifles in ditches and, and I mean, all kinds of stuff. I remember when I was a kid, I just had my driver's license and running season was always closed between January 31st and May 1st in Indiana. Well, I couldn't take that. There's no way. You know? Off season. <laughs> yeah, we're going. We're, I got a young dog. I need to get him out there. I need to hunt him. And so I called an older friend of mine who will rename, remain name, nameless at this point. I'm not going to incriminate him. He said, well, we can go right here behind my house. Just come over. And I showed up and I was wearing my Carhartt bibs and I was wearing my coon hunting light. And I had, you know, I had all, I looked just exactly like a coon hunter. And he <laughs> goes, he goes, what are you doing? <laughs> and I said, we're going hunting. He goes, I'm not going hunting with you dressed like that. He was standing there and I'd seen this guy. He had all the same gear I had better gear of course because he was older and more experienced but he was standing there in a snowmobile suit and a sock hat and he was carrying a little flashlight <laughs> i was goes, broken down <laughs> <laughs> he's like yeah. i'm i'm looking for my cows tonight and yep. and my dogs just happened gonna gonna happen to be out there running around in the dark somewhere exactly so, so i knew what the game was so what we would do is is if we heard a dog treed then one of us would just get out of the truck. You know, we didn't even stop a lot of times. We'd drive down the road and I'd open the door on the on the passenger side of the truck and you slow down just enough where you could jump out, you know, and and then the vehicle would just take on down the road. Well, we were working this guy one night, heard the dog treed, and I did that, got out of the truck and I was standing up on the hill above him. I could see his light down there and then I heard the shots. Um, and some guy walks down the road or comes down the road and he stops at this end, end at the end of the holler by this truck. And he starts yelling out his window and he said, he's yelling the laws down the road. And I'm listening to this whole thing and I'm laughing. And, and the guy down the, the shoot just shot this coon. He's like, what? The law is down the road. <laughs> what? I can't hear you. And he goes, game warden. And he's like, <laughs> <laughs> and he, he pitches the rifle. I heard it, it. We got real flat, rocky creeks. And I heard something clanking in the creek. So I let him walk out, radio to my partner. He goes down there. He, he talks to the guy at the truck. I walk down through, down into the creek, walking down the creek. And I pick up his rifle and bring it out. Oh, <laughs> and I walk out with his rifle and he's the whole time. He's like, Oh, I don't know. I heard somebody shooting too. 
I don't know what was going on. And then I show up with a rifle and I said, and I know I knew his name. I recognize. I said, "Is this your rifle?" And he just hung his head, and he knew at that point it was over. You know. But there's a million stories. It was night. Steve Miller calls it the night I got about got weasel bit. You? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Go. <laughs> you we. Uh, a- no, nah, it was it was it was totally a just a joke, but. Uh, we're doing that same technique, heard dog over the hill, truck slows down. I jump out. Well, the grass was high and they count the county had dug this ditch out the year before and it washed out. So this ditch was like three and a half feet deep. And when I jumped out, I go to jump down in that ditch. I'm just going to go up the other side. Well, there wasn't any bottom to it and my feet got tangled up in the grass. <laughs> so now I'm kind of hanging face down in this ditch. I've, when I showed up, I, I recover, I get out of there and, and get over the hill. And I, the guys are just getting back to the truck and this guy's a good friend of mine. And, but I knew what he was doing. I caught him later. Um, but, um, he gets back to the truck and I show up and I'm covered with mud. There's mud in the mesh on my hat, mud smeared all the way down my arm. I've got mud ground into my gun belt and stuff. And, and this buddy of mine and the officer were both laughing at me. And, and my buddy looks at me, he goes, you looks like you've been in places where you could have got weasel bit. <laughs> <laughs> and he, we didn't get him. He, he'd made it back to the truck before we got there. But you know, the whole thing was, if you can't tell me that it's not a game, it is a game, whether you're a coon hunter or you're a game warden. What do I want to do? Do I want to go down and, and sit around and try to figure out something to do and check the 200th fishing license at night? Or do I want to go out? I'm a hunter. I'm going to go out and hunt. And, exactly. And so the coon hunter was what I hunted a lot of times on those, on those nights. The most and, dangerous game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But the, the guys also knew that, that it was a game for them too. Cause they, I've been around long enough. They brag about when they got away, they would tell me, they would brag to me about it. It's like, <laughs> you were, you were down on Indian Creek last night, weren't you? I was like, <laughs> maybe like that. Ah, don't you lie to me. Yeah. I knew you were down there. The law, the law, <laughs> yeah, the law was down the road, but it was really, a- it, was, it was also one of those deals that I knew, um, you know, seriously, besides the funny part of it, the other reason why I did it and, and took it seriously. And I always tried to treat guys. I remember one night there was a guy that came out and he was with his grandkids and he had, he was packing a rifle and he walked right past me. I saw him packing the rifle and, um, the guy that I knew and a guy that I'd hung with quite a bit and he had his grandkids with him. And I just, Pull him aside. I said, look, said, I wouldn't do anything in the world to disrespect you in front of your grandkids, but you know what you're doing is wrong and you know what I got to do. And he's like, yep, I get it. And he just walked into court and pled guilty. And there really wasn't any hard feelings Damn. about it, you know, but just being able to show a little bit of respect and, and, yeah. you yeah. know, going, having that personal relationship is, is huge. So, um, but getting back to the reason why 
I thought it was important is I knew what a battle it was and what the paradigm was the, you know, the, the, it, of the wildlife managers and professionals about coon hunters. And I knew that wasn't the right story. Yeah. I knew that that story that they're, you know, they're all a bunch of dumb hicks or all that, you know, they're no bunch of no goods. If, 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 you know, they're out there on your property, you better lock up your gas tanks and, and all this other garbage that I heard in my circles, it just wasn't true. So I wanted guys to understand that you don't, we have to be better. We have to do better. We have to show that we're not the guys that are just looking for the opportunity to break the law. Any chance we get right. that we, that we do add value, that we are valuable, that we can teach hunter ed, that we can get involved, that we can, you know, just do a lot of good things. We can help farmers and, and important agriculture and, and all this stuff. So when I would go out and enforce laws like that, it was more of a deal like, Hey, we're not going to get where we need to be as long as you're out here trying to see what you can get away with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that was part of the motivation too. I, uh, yeah, it's a lot. I think about that often, you know, how different my life would have been if I had taken that route too. Overall, I feel like, you know, I mean, did you love it in the end? Were you, you happy you did it? Oh yeah. I don't have any regrets about doing it. You know, it, yeah. um, no regrets at all. The, um, it's, it, it is a, like a different part of my life, a different chapter in my life. Mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a guy that sits around and misses it. I don't miss it at all. I don't think about it much. Um, it was, um, uh, there were times when, but there were times when, when, yeah, it was like, this is, this is what I'm supposed to be doing right now. You know, when, when Columbus, Indiana went underwater and we were rescuing people out of, uh, flooded cars in the Cummins engine parking lot. You know, we launched that boat. We launched that boat on the, on the West, on the East side of, of, uh, Otter Creek, right at the tech center, launched the boat. The water was so high. We launched it in the parking lot of the tech center. And when we got out to the mainstream of that river, the, the freaking creek, this is a Creek. And if you saw this, it, it's normally like, 40 to 50 feet below the state street bridge. And it was so high that it was actually lapping up and hitting the bridge. So when I turned that Dang. boat out into the current, you know, turn it upstream and, and going across that water, it was freaking intense. The water was running over, over 10th street and washed us into the parking lot. Dang. And we were, we were picking people up off of the rest of their cars and transporting them around the building. Wow. So, you know, when you do stuff like that, you know that you're making a difference. <clears throat> the disheartening side was when you had to go out and you knew that there was no reason that a law existed on the books, but <sighs> your department expected you to enforce it. And you had to, you had to, you know, look at sportsmen and try to convince them or, or I didn't even do that. You know, they know what you represent through that uniform. And because somebody's brother-in-law wants to do this or that, now all of a sudden we've got this new regulation that doesn't make any sense. Mm. And that, that part of it was ultimately what, you know, drove me out the door.
the bureaucrats mm-hmm. and the politicians. I simply I get that. Put, uh, a good example is when we um, introduced centerfire rifles into the state of Indiana. We always hunt them with slug guns, muzzleloaders, and um, um, that's it. When we first started, no then shotguns. We had, then we, yeah, slug gun, shotgun. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah right. but that'd be slugs. But then we went to centerfire rifles, and the legislators for for back it up a year. The DNR director had the opportunity to implement a centerfire rifle season, and he failed to do that, even though the majority of Indiana hunters said, yes, we want to, we want that season. But he knew, he knew that if he didn't do anything, the legislators were going to do something with it next year. So instead of his, him getting his hands dirty or putting his name on this thing in any way, he just did nothing. Lame duck. He lame ducked the whole thing and just let it sit there because he knew that his buddies over in the legislature were going to pass this thing. And when they did it, they screwed it all up. You could hunt with a 30-30. You could hunt with a 300 wind mag. You could hunt with with a, a 7 millimeter, but you couldn't hunt with a 270. You couldn't what? hunt with a Yeah, you couldn't hunt with... They excluded, they excluded certain rifle calibers in the political process. So what happens... When you start specifying the calibers that you can hunt deer with, you got the 300 wind mag up here, you got a 243 down here, and there's tons of rifle rounds in the middle there that you could, yeah, you could deer hunt with, yeah, but they weren't listed. So now it's a violation. You come up on the guy with the 270, and it's a violation for him to have that rifle out there. And we had officers Sweet. out there writing tickets because, oh. His buddy's standing there with a 300 wind mag. His other buddy's standing there with a 3030, but you've got a 270. Holy smoke. You're the, you know, who yeah, are you? Right. You know, like Al Capone yeah. type stuff. You know, <laughs> it's like this is not a, I told my guys, it's like the only time I want to see a ticket like this come in here is if there's another violation that goes yeah, with Yeah, compound it. it. Yeah. yeah. You know, in the process, he also was using the 270 rifle. So you can't ignore that. You have to document it. So it goes in your report too, whether it gets filed by the prosecutor or not, it's up to the prosecutor. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But just to go out and be like, I wrote 25 tickets today for guys hunting with 270s. That's not a feather in your cap as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, no. That's 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 crazy. That's <laughs> but coon hunters, houndsmen in general, you know, it's... Uh, you've got to understand that um, we couldn't kill coons in the state of Indiana before, I don't know, 2012, maybe. I think that was what? the year that it, we couldn't, you couldn't kill, coon- kill them. Well, in the summertime. Oh, in the summertime. Yeah. I was like, what? there's a set season, November 8th, got January it, got 31st. It, got it. All other times of the year, they were off limits. You couldn't take, take raccoons. And so, but we got together and we united and we got to know the right people and the deer hunters helped us get this through where we could, we could get that pack. We could, we could take raccoons throughout the year with written permission from the landowner. It's not that black and white, but, but that's what happens instead of, instead of just sitting back and saying, well, I don't agree with this law. I'm going to go out and break it anyway, man, get involved, get organized, get organized, get involved. 
and you can get stuff done and you can make friends. And we had to help them with some deer, deer hunting rules and stuff like that, get stuff pushed through, but that's what it's about. Yeah. Use that, use that. And that's politics to build alliances. Yeah. yeah. So you use politics to your advantage <laughs> so that you can, you can yeah. secure your freedoms and, and open up new opportunities. I would, uh, yeah, I think we all hunters uh, we've talked about this a million times. I think we all have a lot more in common than we don't. Yeah. You know, it's, it, I always use this example, you know, the gangbangers are never going to get back nines legalized. You know, it's not going to happen. <clears throat> and what I mean by that is going out and shooting stuff up only builds fire and resistance from law enforcement and policy makers. But when you, when you're responsible, you, you decide that you're going to be a good steward of the resource. You show up another, another example, DuPont, that coon club over at DuPont, Clifty Creek coon hunters would host a friends of Muscatatuck river day. There wasn't any coon hunting involved. There wasn't any, any, uh, dog events involved. They, they launched canoes and pickup trucks and they went along and they picked up tons of trash along the Muscatatuck river Community and cleaned it, building. cleaned yeah. it up. So then they get their picture taken. They're standing over there with, with pickup truck. They took, slid their dog boxes out and filled them up with trash. They got these picture taken pictures taken. It was in the local newspapers. Now, when they need help, they go over to the DNR office and it's like, Hey, we need help. Or they contact their local representative, say, Hey, we need help. They know that there's other things going on that are not just totally self-serving. Mm -hmm. Community building. Yep. Thing. Get involved. Yep. Western houndsmen have been doing it for years. You know, I know that, you know, they volunteer their time and their gas and everything to, to cooperate in, in large carnivore studies and, you know, houndsman type stuff. And, and that's valuable. So that's why they've got, that's why they've got it. Instead of just sitting back and going, and game wardens and biologists are anti-hunters and they're against us. Baloney. That's, that's baloney. Everyone in my unit's a hardcore hunter. <laughs> Everybody. Yeah. 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 I mean, you were a freak. If, if you were, if you were working as a conservation officer, we, we knew who they were, the guys that didn't hunt. They're like, yeah, we play golf. You know, mm -hmm. you're not, you're not, you haven't killed a deer yet. No, the weather's been nice. I've been playing golf. It's like, get out of here. <laughs> You're not welcome here. <laughs> Get out. Get. My my litmus test is: Are you? Do you like? Do you like pronghorn? If you do, get out of here. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Yep. The, we've been uh, at it. We've been at it quite a while, brother. I gotta get some dinner in me. <laughs> I hear you. Yep. I hear you, buddy. No, it's uh. Let's wrap this one up. I don't know what we're gonna call this one yet. Maybe coon hunters and game wardens. What do you think? The laws down the road. <laughs> the laws down the road. I like that. The laws down the road. And you got to say it like that. The law is down the road. It reminds me. How do you me spell of... it? L A U W. The yeah, law. 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 <laughs> it's like uh, that scene from uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Do I actually not, have seen that movie. <laughs> do not seek the treasure. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> My dad loves that that movie it's like mm -hmm. one of his favorite movies of all time yep it is I a good said, one i'm okay hey, brother it. thanks for joining me man it's a you good one me. you join me 
This yeah, is, good point. This is a Houndsman XP podcast. This isn't all mixed up. Thanks Get for out of here. It's it's a habit to say thanks for joining me. Yeah. <laughs> well, I I'm glad we got plug. together. <laughs> oh, absolutely. All right, man. I'm gonna wrap it up. Till next Bam. week. Thanks for listening to the Houndsman XP podcast. Love a game warden and a biologist this week. This is fair chase. <laughs>